This Veritas episode contains material that may be disturbing and is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is strongly advised. give you a preamble before we begin with this week's episode, which was recorded a few days before Jeffrey Epstein's apparent suicide and the latest mass shootings. The Manhattan prison, where Epstein allegedly died, is the same that until recently housed Mexican drug lord El Chapo Guzman. The surveillance equipment malfunctioned inside Epstein's cell. How convenient. Epstein was removed from suicide watch a few days before his death. Before the alleged suicide, Epstein was left alone and not closely monitored. The biggest fish in the pond is not monitored. Epstein's death was on 4chan before officials announced it. A user made a series of six posts beginning at 8.16 a.m. Saturday, around 40 minutes before news of the convicted pedophile's death broke. Quote, don't ask me how I know, but Epstein died an hour ago from hanging, cardiac arrest. Screen kept this, unquote. The first post reads, Epstein allegedly committed suicide a day after a federal appeals court unsealed more than 2,000 pages of documents related to Epstein and his alleged procurer of underage girls, Ghislaine Maxwell. Maxwell's Wikipedia page temporarily showed her death date as August the 30th, 2019, before it was restored to her being alive. Although I wouldn't be surprised if she's suicided are concited or has an accident. Sources are claiming that someone in the British royal family has died. We may find out in a few days. Could it be Prince Andrew, who is also associated with Epstein and his debauchery? More fuel to the fire. You may know Dr. Michael Batten, the celebrity pathologist. Batten was hired by Epstein's representatives to independently observe his autopsy. During his decades-long career, Batten has investigated the assassinations of President John F. Kennedy and Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. The ears and nose of the body shown to the media do not match Epstein's. Former CIA officer and veteran of this program, Robert David Steele, speculates Epstein is probably already in Israel undergoing plastic surgery. Here's a tweet from a former Las Vegas chief of police. Epstein and prosecutors have reached a plea agreement, part of which was faked death, new identity, and taken to an undisclosed location to fully cooperate with investigators. Cabal quaking in their boots. I know this because of my confidential source, who I trust, is very reliable. The latest shootings were false flags, done as a distraction. Many more false flags coming." Unquote. One last thing I'd like to share with you. This is a message posted anonymously. Obviously. We cannot corroborate this information at this time, but we'll share it with you for your consideration. It's timestamped 7.44 a.m. on August the 10th, 2019. Quote, Not saying anything after this, please do not try to dox me. But last night after 04.15, count, they took him medical in a wheelchair, front cuffed, but not one triage nurse says they spoke to him. Next thing we know, a trip van shows up. We don't do releases on the weekends unless a judge orders it. Next thing we know, he's put in a single man cell and hangs himself. Here's the thing. The trip van did not sign in and we did not record the plate number 
but a guy in a green dress military outfit was in the back of the van, according to the tower guy, who led him through the gate. You guys, I am shaking right now, but I think they switched him out." Unquote. Most everyone in our parapolitical world saw this coming, and you will hear predictions in tonight's interview, even though, once again, it was recorded days before his apparent death. I don't know how far this case will go on, or if it will be overshadowed by another false flag. There's so much more that's coming through, but that's all I'll share for now. One last reminder, most of the disturbing information on this interview is on part two. Let's begin. The questions you always had, the answers you were never given, the place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Tonight we have chosen someone else who is in the crosshairs of the deep state, and specifically the digital dictatorship. A few conference rooms in Silicon Valley are now dictating our online culture. Like Veritas, he has been censored for telling the truth. We've all heard George Orwell's famous quote, in a time of universal deceit, telling the truth is a revolutionary act. In fact, lately, telling the truth renders you a racist a revolutionary, subversive, and even a terrorist. There is freedom of speech, as long as what you say doesn't offend or hurt someone else's feelings. Is that truly freedom of speech? Remember this. First, they came for independent media. Then, they will come for independent thinkers. And that is you. Greetings, I'm your host, Mel Fabregas. And if you're new to the Veritas family, welcome home. To listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, just click on the subscribe button. And don't forget to visit the Veritas store for MMS, hemp oil, pure organic sulfur, and much more. And if you want to get in touch with me, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. Tonight's special guest is Ryan Dawson, a historian from the College of William and Mary, with 20 years of political activism in a variety of mediums, blogging, radio, book, film, and television, Ryan has appeared multiple times on numerous international radio and TV platforms. He is the webmaster and host for ANCReport.com, which features podcasts on politics and economics with professionals from around the world. He's also an author and has some of the titles of his books, Welcome to the USSA, the separation of business and state, and why peace. And directly from Osaka, Japan, I'd like to welcome Ryan Dawson. Hello, Ryan, and welcome to Veritas. Thank you. That was a very nice intro. Why peace? I'm a co-author on that Smart Goodman's book, but a chapter in it is mine. That's fine. And are you in Osaka? Yes, I am. Okay. It's really early where you are. We just had the G20 here a few months ago. That's right. By the way... I heard you say that uh, things are heating up between South Korea and Japan. What do you mean by that? Well, first, I just want to tell everybody we had to take people off of Fukushima cleanup and divert them to uh, where John Bolton was staying to get up, get rid of the stench. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Is this still there? The sulfur smell still around? Yeah, I mean, it, it's similar to John McCain. He never came here, but uh, yeah, it's disgusting. He was run out of town, and what's interesting is when uh, 
Trump visited North Korea right after G20 and had that famous photo op in the DMZ. Yeah. Uh, Bolton was furious because, and the New York Times even reported this, which, you know, I w- that's the most shocking thing <laughs> that a mainstream paper would say this, but Bolton was livid because he'd been left out of the loop. They were talking about a, uh, a nuclear freeze and, and not raising the bar as high as they had in the past. And Bolton said, there's no plan like that. I haven't been informed of this. And everyone was laughing because they're like, yeah, you haven't. North Korea called John Bolton the defective human product. And so apparently he's been left out of the loop because they know just nothing will ever be good enough for Bolton. He's a uh, neocon whipping boy. Yeah. I could never understand how Trump, who did not agree with the Iraq war, hires one of the architects of the Iraq war, John Bolton. Why do you think that is? Because Sheldon Adelson paid for it. It was on the same day he gave a pardon to Louis Libby. And by the way, folks, if you don't know who Sheldon Adelson is, all you have to do is take a look at before elections. If you're not blessed by Sheldon Adelson, he owns pretty much Las Vegas. I mean, he's just one of these uh, Zog billionaires. And uh, he also has good relations with the Kushners, who Trump is is now related to through marriage. Charles Kushner is another one of these Zog billionaires who went to prison for uh, campaign finance tampering, witness tampering, and setting honey traps. One of his targets was the governor of uh, New Jersey, Governor McGreevy. It's very important for them to control the uh, governor of New Jersey because that's who appoints the chairman of the Port Authority, uh, which owned the uh, property involved in 9-11. But the Port Authority also is responsible for lucrative state contracts for construction in New York and New Jersey. They they run all the ports, the airports, the seaports, uh, which is what allows them to have uh, the 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 warehouses and, and property necessary to import illegal narcotics. You gotta have a base of operations. And so it's very, very important to control the chairmanship of the PA, which is now run by the former president of APAC. The largest Israeli lobby, and through that money, then they're able to then recycle portions of it back on bribes to continue to run the PA and to get these lucrative contracts and get uh, a lot of money, which is used uh, on the federal level uh, through APAC and other Israeli first organizations like United Israel Appeal into uh, lobbying the Congress to do the same gamut they do on the state level and the federal level. And ensure that America will subsidize uh, Israeli snipers shooting Palestinian children and annexing land and causing conflict in the Middle East. So it, this this is a family, the Kushners, that had uh, – I'm going to answer your Korea question in a second. But this is a family that had Netanyahu sleep in uh, Jared Kushner's bed. Very tight relationship with the prime minister of Israel. And they've made Jared Kushner, Charles's son, the, the head of the uh, the so-called peace plan the peace in the Middle yeah. East. Yeah, a piece. Piece is spelled wrong. It's like a piece here, a piece there going to Israel. But as far as uh, kind of unrelated, but as far as South Korea and Japan go, I don't think that's really hit the radar yet. Maybe it will today, but things are really heating up between uh, these two nations. It's really silly. It's, you know, one good thing about President Moon of South Korea is he was elected as the sunshine president. He's good on North Korea as far as um, 
extending an olive branch and looking at at ways to maintain peace and to and not have this all or nothing attitude like accept every single one of our demands or or nothing changes they're willing to go in steps as a process for denuclearization of the north in exchange for uh, sanction relief and cooperative economic zones, etc. The bad side of Moon is he's a little bit, I don't want to say SJW because they're not so extreme as like giving hormones to six-year-olds or anything, but he's part of this clique in South Korea that's always demanding that Japan apologize for World War II, which they've done two million times. Um but it's never enough. And there's always going to be some right-wing nuts in Japan, like anywhere, that are like, what comfort women? And, you know, just deny everything. And But what South Korea has been pushing for recently is they want Mitsubishi. You know, Mitsubishi. Mitsubishi's a bank as well. It's not just a tech sure. company. They want them to pay for laborers that were used in World War II who were either underpaid or basically not paid, almost slaves. Um, but the Japanese government is refusing to make them do that because it's been 75 years and uh, Japan already paid a lump sum to the South Korean government for for World War II atrocities, which was up to them to spend on whatever. And that money's been spent and Japan says we're not doing that uh because it is a kind of unrealistic demand i mean there's no doubt that japan annexed korea for 40 years and committed horrible atrocities imperial army did in china and both koreas but that was settled uh after world war ii i mean japan was punished severely had its cities nuked firebombed 22 other cities they were in no position to pay for anything and still did and so the 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 thing is that... The Excuse my interruption for a second, but you mentioned that nukes. And I've always had a hard time with that part. I, firebombed, yes. But how is it that Hiroshima and Nagasaki are thriving cities shortly after World War II? Were they really nuked or were they firebombed? And they're using the word nuke to scare the world. No, they were nuked. Uh, those things were eviscerated. The propaganda about nuclear weapons is not as everything you know here about nuclear technology and bombs is a little bit of chicken little. Like nukes, that's what nuke, I mean. Yeah, they can evaporate a city and all, and radiation poison is a real thing. But this nuclear winter scenario and oh, nothing will ever grow there again. Uh, none of that's true. Um, it's they rebuilt them because the Japanese the, re, the same way they rebuilt all the cities that were firebombed as well. I mean, they, they kept the wartime economy during peacetime. They developed the Zaibatsu system. And Japan, uh, like Germany, has a really solid work ethic and, and culture that's conducive to success in those areas. And so there, I think some of the last survivors of the radiation poison died around 2006 or so. Uh, there may be a few stragglers, but... Uh, by and large, the people that are in Hiroshima now aren't the ones that were there before. They're people that moved in to the area afterward. Um, same with Nagoya, same with uh, Nagasaki. Now, Nagoya was not nuked, but... Why do you think that Korea, or South Korea rather, is overtaking Japan in a lot of the their technology prowess these days? 
Well, I mean, so it's it would be amazing for Japan to just stay on top in every sector forever. South Korea has adopted the same sort of free market capitalism as Japan, and they're a very intelligent uh, society with their own strict work ethic, and they've been able to to do very well in niche areas. I'd say they're still pretty far behind in automotive industry, like Japan, Toyota and, and a lot of Japanese companies are just still head and shoulders above Korea and probably anyone else. Uh, ISIS sure likes that Toyota Hilux. You know, it's proven to be a very uh, durable pickup truck. You know? And uh, and in cameras and things. <laughs> Which but we buy, South right? Korea's done, <laughs> South Korea's done very well in the cell phone market. And, uh, and, and part of that is because of English. Uh, they're able to flip their products, like, like things like cell phones, uh, into having English text and stuff a lot faster than the Japanese. And that's part of the reason. And Samsung and there, there are niche industries in Korea that have always never been bad. They've just always been in the shadow of Japan with the, the Sony and Panasonic and all. They really missed the boat on, on a lot of tech. I mean, Sony was the pioneer of the Walkman. Right. For the Generation X and older, I'll remember, uh, and probably everybody had that little yellow Walkman in the 80s or whatever. But uh, when it went digital, it was uh, Apple that grabbed the uh, the iPad, I think it was called, or iPod, whatever. The iPod. With MP3s. And, and Sony sort of uh, missed the boat there. Japan has been focusing more into, like Sharp, for example, they make 50% of all solar panels in the world. And so they've been looking into green energy because Japan is always playing the long game. Uh, that's Asia in general, I guess. But And so uh, they've been slipping a little bit. They, Sony and, and some of these other companies, too, have been building uh, like refrigerators and things that are doing well domestically within Japan. Um, but uh, they've got a lot of competition from South Korea for... Uh, flat screen TVs, phones, and so on. Uh, another thing that hurt Japan is they, they were actually ahead in the cell phone market, helped invent the cell phone, in fact, and fell behind because Docomo and a lot of their companies, Japan played a gamble to dominate the market in India. And then the down there, they just pirate everything and, and um, just ignore copyright law and build the phones that Japan made reverse engineered and then didn't pay them. So they lost huge on that. China, the same thing. They just ignore copyright law. They're very bad at innovation because there's no motivation to do it because they know your intellectual property won't be protected. Uh, But they're very good at being parasitic to someone else and taking their tech in in everything, not just tech. I mean, China's got a Chinese Mickey Mouse, a a Chinese Super Mario, a Chinese Pikachu, and they don't pay any royalties on anything. I was going to say that we're going to talk about China in a moment, but I remember in the early 2000s when flat screens really came out, it was Panasonic, it was Sony, and then all of a sudden, Samsung and LG basically just took over the market. Mm-hmm. Well, I'd still put Japan at number two. I mean, it's not like they suck. It's just South Korea is, uh, they, you know, a lot, you know, part of it too is um, when Korea was struggling, uh, Japan hired out to South Koreans. So it might have been a Japanese company, but there were a lot of South Koreans working there and as apprenticeship style, and they took that knowledge home, and now they're surpassing in that area. They're also doing very well in South Korea, is very well in cosmetics, and uh, 
starting to starting to catch Japan in some like um, in Meiji chocolate and some other areas. This is stuff they fight about with each other. It's hilarious, but we all benefit from this competitive war between the two because as consumers, as just quality of life, because I like being able to have a, you know, or used to have a, a Japanese car and a, and a Korean cell phone and so on. Like it's good for us, you know, <laughs> and that's competition. I remember when I spent time in, in, Singapore and Hong Kong and so on in the mid-90s. Singapore, as you know, is the controlled democracy where people live happily oppressed. But then you have this island that's one of the strongest, most powerful countries in the world. How do they do that? Well, you know, capitalism works. And a lot of other people went the other direction. Do you think that's what saved China? China, I mean, saved Eastern China. Western China looks like a fifth world country. I mean, they have limits on how much water you can use for a shower. They can't even get their population to pee inside. It's uh, it's pretty abysmal. Communism wiped. Communism did so much damage to China. They, I mean, not everyone knows they lost tens of millions of people due to starvation and so on. But that's China probably had one of, if not the most, rich histories and cultures on Earth, and now. It's a shadow of its former self. It's starting to survive because they've they've abandoned communism, but they've they're still run by oligarchs. So it's like out of one fire and into another one. But it's a it's a mess, and a lot of their best and brightest fled to Hong Kong or the United States or Malaysia. The Chinese do every do pretty well everywhere other than China, and uh, of course there are some Chinatowns in the U.S you know, left over from the legacy of uh, post-world, post-Civil War slavery that were brought over. But those who immigrated on their own do very well. And China had a huge brain drain. And uh, they seek refuge other areas since China doesn't obey copyright, didn't even allow personal property for a long time. Uh, people were leaving as soon as they could. And... The wealth in China is very tightly controlled by families that benefited from the uh, government and nepotism of you know redistributing wealth <laughs> under the communist system. But as they've been adopting more market principles, they have been able to to maintain a lot of power uh, and at least bully around their neighbors uh, who also suffered under communism, like the Vietnamese and and so on. And so it's not like they were racing ahead. It's the few places like Japan and South Korea that were able to uh, defeat communism outright that are sitting now as the third and 11th largest market on in the world. Japan has a higher GDP than any country in Europe, almost any two countries. They've been, uh, they took Western philosophy and did it better than the West. Do you think Milton Friedman was responsible for the revival of Japan and perhaps even South Korea? No, it takes a combination. I mean, it's not just that it it's not just because they have free market capitalism. You have to have a a culture that encourages a strong work ethic, nuclear family. There are a lot of ingredients and they had that. And it definitely helped for in the U.S. wrote a constitution for the Japanese that, for example, women's suffrage 
now females can work any job they want. They couldn't before. That's 50% of your workforce. And allowing uh, what's hilarious is freedom of speech, which the U.S. no longer has, <laughs> and Japan does. <laughs> and then uh, a similar thing in South Korea. So, And the other reason, I think, is the during the Cold War, the threat from communist China was so great and North Korea to South Korea and Japan that uh, the CIA was low enough to even work with mafia groups like the Yakuza to really stamp out any leftist ideology. And it went too far in some respects, like, oh, you want a labor union? Here, send in the mafia strike busters. But the, uh, the net result was this leftist poison never really took root because they just hammered it as soon as it was even in a baby phase they went and stomped it out and so it allowed for a very successful economy in both countries unlike what's happening here with this cancer is metastasizing in our colleges and universities if these children that come out of high school go to college they come out being social stay children yeah, yeah. Col college is a it's now about babysitting they uh, People are whining about uh, student debt and saying, oh, look at all, we need to forgive this debt, which is wrong because what about all the people who paid their loans? Are you going to refund too? Nobody made you go into debt. People have student debt, student loans because they borrowed more than they could pay. I mean, that's your own fault. Or they chose a profession in the future or a, a major that was irrelevant. It's useless. And, you know, they get, They got sold a bad deal. They thought, oh, college is worth any price. I just need to borrow whatever I need to so I can get this degree and then I'll make it all back later. Well, no, you won't. There are diminishing returns. It's basic economics. I guess they never learned in high school. They also lowered the standards across the board. They have this ridiculous, um, what do they call it, equity, this silly identitarian politics where they let certain biological categories in ahead of others just to try and make things have even outcomes and ignoring merit. And so people get in over their heads and then it waters the whole, it waters down the entire campus curriculum. And then they have like feminist studies and all these BS courses that have no business being in a place of higher learning. And they graduate with the equivalent of a mortgage and yet no house. And then wonder, what, I have to pay this back? Yes, when you, unlike the government, when you borrow money, you have to pay it back. And guaranteed, guaranteed college loans made the price of college unaffordable for all. They tried to make it affordable for everyone, and it ends up doing the opposite. That's what leftist policies do. If you're going to give everyone a loan for a house, let's say, what happens to the price of housing? Definitely going up because the people selling the house know that everyone has all this credit, so they're going to sell it for a higher price. What happened to the price of universities when they know that <laughs> student loans are guaranteed and you can't declare bankruptcy? The first step is, Ryan, to remove the government from guaranteeing loans or at least have the institutions have some skin in the game. Just put 50% Have some of the moral guarantee. hazard, yeah. Exactly. Well, I would, I would go further. I would get rid of the Department of Ed completely. Because they are the third biggest corporation in the United States. Now, they're not listed as such because they're not considered a corporation. But if you want to just add up revenue of who made the most, off, 
student loans are in the multi-billions of dollars. There was Apple and Google, and then the Department of Ed was number three. Because what they do is they, they're able to borrow from the Fed at a very low interest rate because it's the government. And then they loan it out at a higher interest rate to all these suckers to go to college. And then they're collecting in the spread. And they probably would be the richest company in the United States were most of these students able to pay it back. The problem is most of them are, are defaulting and they don't care. They drive them into debt. It's, it's modern day debt slavery. And uh, one, students should just stop taking these loans. No, Yes, we should get rid of the Department of Ed. Yeah, we should get the government out of it. But ultimately, uh, parents and families ought to have enough fiscal responsibility and personal accountability to say, no, I'm not going to borrow $70,000. I can't pay that back. Just don't do it. But, uh, you know, aside from that, of course, we should get rid of the Department of Ed. Uh, we shouldn't have guaranteed student loans. There should be skin in the game. There's a lot of ways the state could fix the problems the state created. But um, people can fix it, too, by just simply not taking the loan and go, well, what I have to go to this school. No, you don't. But I can tell you right now, unless they prove to me otherwise with some exceptional interview or something, I won't hire a millennial. I don't care where they went to school because it doesn't mean anything anymore. Oh, they want your job. They want your business the day after you hired them. They want to be CEO on the second day. It's the, they are inculcating such an attitude of entitlement. And some of them are like, well, I am, and they fill in the blank of uh, different ethnic and whatever sort of minority thing as if that it's like oppression math. Um, oh, I'm female and I'm brown and I'm this and, uh, and I'm gay and uh, whatever, which is irrelevant. You know, it ought to be. But uh, in college, you know, that's you get rewarded for that. And if they fail for whatever reason, instead of blaming their own behavior, or lack of ability, it almost inevitably goes straight back to some sort of ism or ist, or I call them ismaholics, uh, where it, they want to blame prejudice. And if you're successful, instead of looking at merit, uh, they'll blame that on privilege. Like people are just given things or not given things uh, based on race, sex, etc. Because that's what they're used to. Because they are given things based on race and sex, when they're in college, when they're in the giant babysitting facility. Uh, <laughs> there is no privilege. There's definitely uh, ethnic nepotism, especially with the tribe that does exist. That's the only privilege I can see. But uh, Asians and whites, for example, are held to higher standards than other groups, uh, and they have to compete with the entire population rather than just their own category, which is ridiculous. But you see... A loan is a loan, Ryan. If you and I are in the mortgage business, we have underwriters. You're not going to be approving my loan unless you think that I'm credit worthy. Shouldn't colleges and universities have underwriters? If you're going to be applying for a $100,000 loan for underwater basket weaving, shouldn't they have a department that looks into the future? Five years, let's say that's the average time that you need to graduate. And if that profession is not there, they should not approve that loan. I mean, if you can weave a basket underwater, I'm actually more impressed with that than uh, feminist studies or 
<laughs> and interpret and dance or some of the other stuff they do. That's, actually, if you could weave a basket underwater. <laughs> but how do they expect impressive. to make a living in most of these outrageous degrees? Because they think they're entitled to it. They're like, but I did. I worked my ass off. That's their favorite phrase. <laughs> like, you worked your ass off doing something useless. Um, I don't think, I mean, a lot of them live with their parents or whatever. And let's be real. Like, a lot of, a lot of what determines whether or not you're going to be successful job-wise is who you know. It's not really about whether you went to college or not. It's, it's your social skill and who you know. And uh, that's unfortunate. It comes down to, are you around money? It takes money to make money. And wealthy people can can benefit from that sort of nepotism of any color, of any whatever. If you know the right people and you get the right connections, you're probably going to do well. And they don't care what you know. But there are professions that can't you can't fake it. You know, if you're a specialist, if you're a surgeon or something, that's, you know, you can either do it or you can't. If you're an engineer, that, that bridge either falls or doesn't. But there are plenty of other jobs, like it's consultants and stuff like that, where they, some rich weeb can just get some BS job and get paid. And some of that is just unfixable, really. But these people that dye their hair purple and quit taking care of themselves, you can look at their physically degenerate. And then all they do is virtue signal and go on witch hunts looking for prejudices and stuff. They're useless. I mean, you can't, they don't show up on time. Oh, in the morning? No, nah, no, nah, I can't do that. Like, oh, you can't wake up in the morning? <laughs> That's the first thing you should uh, learn in college is, you know, having a schedule and going to class on time, right? Well, they just schedule things all in the afternoon or whatever. They don't want to wake up. It's just the level of uh They have their parents confidence. call in sick for them. That Yeah, they make up. Everyone's got an illness. Everyone's got a excuse or ADHD or whatever, and, oh, I need extra time or I need that, which really sucks for the handful that actually have uh, some sort of disability because now it's just, just what you say, you know, as because they figured out, oh, here's a way I can, uh, I can cheat. I can just say I have this or that and not be held to the same standards as others. And it's rewarding cheaters. There are certain millennials that are the old school type of people who wake up early, who are hardworking. Those are the ones who are going to rise to the occasion. They're sticking out like sore thumbs because they're the minority right now. Yeah, we call them Japanese. <laughs> no, but usually a lot of Asian families that in the United States aren't average because at least one parent had to be bilingual, which already puts you usually above the, the 100 IQ zone. Um, but the, they are punishing people for having successful cultural attitudes because they want to blame racism for the disparities across uh, the social strata. And it just isn't. I mean, for example, I don't know when, I think it was the early nineties or whatever, when they decided that speaking proper English is not a requirement. Uh, we're just going to have Ebonics. Yeah, I remember Which has that. no roots in Africa or anything like that. We're just going to invent a language and act like people speaking improper grammar or using improper grammar are speaking Ebonics. If you 
cannot conjugate verbs correctly or if you just talk like an adult, you're not going to get a good job. But instead of correcting that behavior, they do the opposite. They go, oh, we'll just have to accept this behavior. And if you don't, you're prejudiced. <laughs> that is why these groups fail, is because they blame everyone else for their problem. It's liberals. It's sad attitude of external locus of control and nothing's ever my fault. And if there is anything bad out there, it's society. It's not me. I don't have to change anything. It's got to be everyone else. And when there are groups, for whatever reasons, from a certain cultural area or religion or whatever, that stress positive qualities, like studying and saving and having a good work ethic and honesty and punctuality and so on, well, then they're privileged. Not well-behaved or disciplined. It's, oh, it's your privilege. I don't see a lot of prejudice in the United States uh, when it comes to job markets. Employers want to hire whoever is going to make them money, whoever is reliable. They could care less what your background is or whatever. Uh, and you just don't see that much, uh, especially in these liberal cities where they they can't even do the most basic task. And they feel like if they do like three things right in a row, they're ready to be the, the manager or something. You better have a trophy or a plaque ready. Yeah, they want $15 an hour. <laughs> the minimum wage is ridiculous anyway because different cities and states have different costs of living and right. rates of inflation and so on. And so like $15 an hour in rural Arkansas is not the same as New York City. Probably $15 an hour in coastal Los Angeles or in uh, Manhattan isn't very much, but most places it's plenty. And in most places that would just bankrupt a small business. Oh, you cannot make it equal throughout the United States. I mean, I live in a liberal city in Arizona and they're doing that. They're pushing that all the time. Next year we have to raise minimum wage another dollar. And then the ones who vote for it, when we have to raise our prices, whether it's a restaurant or whatever, then they complain. Yeah. Oh my God, why are the prices so high? And that it, well, you voted for it. Minimum wage should not be a place for you to stay for the rest of your life. It's an incentive for you to get out of there, to yeah. educate yourself so you can jump out of it to a better job. It's usually a part-time job or something right. a teenager does while, while they're doing something else or whatever. It's, it stifles competition. If you raise minimum wage, you're knocking out the competitive businesses to these giant evil corporations, man. Uh, if you hate McDonald's or whatever, it's the Ma and Paul burger places that are going to get put out of business by $15 an hour minimum wage. I tell people, do you sell $60 worth of burgers an hour? Because if, if you're getting paid one, if you got one person in the whole store in two hours, that's $30. And then half the money usually is paying for the product. Like if you, if the burger costs two dollars, it costs a dollar to make usually. Yeah, and labor so and the rest went of into it. that. The labor is thirty dollars now. Uh, so you have to sell at least sixty dollars worth of product to break even, and that's not including the the building, the lease, electricity, and all the other uh, add-ons that make it expensive. 
And like do, in your little local thing during lunch, do you sell at least $60 worth of stuff? Because that's what it would take uh, minimal just to have you there. And you'd have to do it every day. Now make that an entire work day. So not just during lunch hour or whatever. Like are you pulling in $30 an hour? No. Then you're not going to get paid $15 an hour. Like They don't understand that what you get paid is a reflection of how much you produce. You can't just arbitrarily say, yeah, well, I need this because I want to have this size house and car and go out to eat twice a week and da 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 Like, well, then get a better skill and right. get a better job. Not only that, but then the people who have been in the company for a number of years who were expecting a raise, now that the minimum wage goes up, then those people have to wait longer to get their raise because we can no longer do it anymore. So it stifles. Mm-hmm. And you end up subsidizing the the giant corporations anyway. Like Walmart, let's say, maybe they could do, I think they raise their prices or wages up to $11 or something in front of, instead of eight on their own. Uh, be, because of the tax cuts that Trump gave, they were able to raise their wages. Not only that, but where's the source of inventory? Yeah, well, you're going to get automated out of a job is what's right. going to happen. Like, machines can scoop ice cream and, and say... They're already in Hawaii. There's there are machines in fast food restaurants to just push buttons. Wawa was doing that too. The Korean chain, you push buttons on a screen and out comes your sandwich. And there's no interaction with any people. You're going to get automated. The real minimum is zero. And if you make it too costly to hire a person, they won't hire people. It's that simple. You they're going to they're going to uh, legislate themselves out of a job. Another way around it is they just hire everyone for 39 and a half hours. So no full-time employees. So they're not paying them uh, a full-time wage. Yep. I think that AI will take over. But then there's the other variable that I've been talking about for a long time. I agree. Time. I don't call it AI, though. I just call it machines because it's not artificial intelligence. It's just automation. Yeah, robotics. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But don't you think that right now, I mean, this is mainstream, and people are saying, oh, this is fake news. It's not. Scientists are making human-monkey hybrids in China. Do you think the end result of this will be that we'll have slavery once again? Since these chimeras won't be 100% human, they'll be the next servers. They'll be the next workers. What do you think? We kind of still already have slavery with sweatshop labor and prison labor. So, I mean, slavery never really completely died. It was transformed into the nine-to-five matrix. It's wage slaves were more cost-efficient than cattle slaves. I mean, they proved that. They're willing to let you starve to death. Um, you know, and that's because, I mean, you can blame Lincoln for that. He's the one that married corporation and state, the railroad companies and so on, and enslaved the Chinese and murdered the Indians. And a lot of the former uh, African slaves end up doing exactly what they were doing before, except they weren't getting a free house and food, and how many of them died or ended up in jail, and they didn't care what the result was. It's all about looking good. Of course, slavery is horrible, but you got to understand that it's not always the uh, the most visual kind that that prevails. There's plenty of other forms of slavery. When you look at some of these sweatshops, in Brazil or China, where these women are live in a factory with suicide nets, uh, building Apple phones and whatnot. They're slaves. They just—it's offshore slavery. They just moved it out of sight, out of mind. 
And I'd really say some of these nine to fivers that are just stuck paying off interest on loans are debt slaves, just like the British used to do to the Irish and well, to to themselves too. Oh, you can't pay your debt off to Australia, you go. And that was just arbitrarily. They raised the price of, uh, on tenants because uh, because it was a little game of mm, which makes more money uh, using this land for wool and sheep, since there's a new way of processing wool, or uh, having tenants. And when the sheep wool was worth more than the people, they ran the people off the land by raising the rates until they couldn't pay anymore and sent them off the debtor's prison. It's disgusting. And you can see it coming. But uh, and a lot of that happened in the 2008 housing bubble. They think, oh, man, that was in the 1800s. That was forever ago. No, it wasn't. The Federal Reserve paid out over $22 trillion to the wealthiest people in the world in corporate bailouts. And these people are engaged in fraud, which is already illegal. So it's not like lack of regulation or something. No, wait, they, they already bribed rating agencies, which is illegal. They made these, they packaged uh, subprime mortgages in, I call it, the way I explain it to plebs, is it's like imagine having a roll of $1 bills with a 20 on the top. They took all these toxic assets and gave them AAA ratings and then sold the securities to third parties and they didn't even get insurance. They did credit default swaps, which is like Dirty multiple mix. parties. Yeah, all all having insurance on the same one piece of property or something. Which is, I mean, that's horrible. Imagine like getting insurance for your house and your house catches on fire. Okay, they got to pay you. But what if everybody gets insurance on your house <laughs> and then it catches fire? Now they got to pay every single person. And they were creating sieves, and Epstein was involved in that, by the way. That's the, I know the uh, child raping all the sexual parts, the more saucy part of the story, and it is absolutely disgusting, and the guy deserves to be dipped in a pool of piranhas. But he was creating um, structure investment vehicles for Bear Stearns for the purpose of money laundering and, and also for shifting around toxic assets so it made it look like Bear Stearns was solvent and had balanced books when they didn't. And he did it again for J.P. Morgan Chase, who bought out Bear Stearns. And I have, well, no, I know. I used to have a map video on that. YouTube just banned me again. Uh, I know you've been facing a lot of that, too. Sure. Um, the, I've, I've got those videos up on BitChute. It's just, it's going to take time to... uh to migrate the audience and all that. Unlike you, I was, um, YouTube was my base. I started on it 13 years ago and it was really hard to, to quit because it was, well, there really wasn't any alternative until very recently. And I just had so much on there and it's hard to migrate. I remember there was, there used to be Blot Talk Radio, there was YouTube. And I used to think from day one, something tells me that in the future, freedom of speech will be a thing of the past. You have to own your own platform. And whatever you do ancillary, that's additional. And even when you do, it's like the public is, it's hard to get them to, to quit right. the Facebooks and the YouTube and start using the hive mind VK or BitChute or something else. And, and even some of the alternatives have been worse. Vimeo stole $5,000 from me, erased all my movies overnight. I was on there for six years. What's your explanation? Then, what did they say to you? They didn't give me one. I had to argue with them back and forth forever. It was basically 
I criticize Israel, which they consider to be anti-Semitism. And I couldn't even find that out. Like people who bought my films and then couldn't get refunds fought them in the courts and whatnot. And I finally got a letter that they had written to a district attorney in New York saying, well, the SPLC says this guy's anti-Semitic. <laughs> like, well, the SPLC is full of shit. The SPLC, the Southern Poverty Law Center, called me a Holocaust denier and all this other baloney. Is there a real difference between the SPLC, the Southern Poverty Law Center, and the ADL, the Anti-Defamation League? Well, there's not really. I mean, they're uh, the ADL is larger. They use the SPLC sort of as a buffer. So the SPLC is the ADL's attack dog when they want to really just blatantly go after people and smear them and libel people and slander people. They'll use the SPLC so that it doesn't go back to the ADL. And um, most of the time, if you fight them hard enough, they're proxy. they'll take. Yeah, they'll take down whatever they wrote or whatever, but the damage is done. Like if it's like it's like accusing somebody of being a rapist. Even if you're completely acquitted, you did nothing. Everyone's like, oh, that guy got called a rapist one time, and and calling somebody a racist, the reputation, especially in American culture. I mean, you might you might as well like, you know, wave your dick in a movie theater or something. It's like one of the worst things. You just. Uh, and, it, and it's like, a, how do you prove yourself innocent? Well, or, I'm not racist or whatever. Like, that sounds bad, too. It's a, it's a real weapon for the left. Is, and you saw it in the Democrat debates, even. They bring it, is Joe Biden a racist? That was, a, that was an actual question from the moderators from Kamala Harris, who got properly, properly put in her place by Tulsi, Tulsi Gabbard. Yeah. Threw her in the woodshed and drop kicked it off a cliff. It's awesome. <laughs> and she did not know how to respond. She she did not expect that she was going to be attacked. She didn't know what to do because the other side's never allowed to speak. And she's so used to being like, racist. Well, done there. I win. You know, it's like Hitler. haha, I win. And uh, but Tulsi Gabbard's also a woman of color and in the military. And she she met all the uh, requirements that it, it takes to be allowed to even have an opinion and, uh, well, Joe Biden doesn't. He's a white guy, so he's disqualified. Do you think that Tulsi is the Ron Paul of the Democrats? She's not as good as Ron Paul, but she's getting censored like Ron Paul was. Right. They're giving her the Ron Paul treatment for sure. Um, Russian bot, uh, uh, the lapdog of uh, Assad, you name it. Yeah. Assad's killing Al-Qaeda, which is what we're supposed to be doing. Right. Uh, Kamala Harris is an Al-Qaeda apologist. All of them are. Bernie Sanders is. They're all Assad must go, blah, blah, blah. It's, uh, it's just Obama's uh, third term or, or who was really Bush's third and fourth term. Nothing right. changed. doesn't matter which party in that regard. They all, all about Israel. Yeah, to me, Clinton, Bush, and Obama were the same. I mean, I think Obama was a little worse in degree on certain things, especially in the economy, than Bush. But at least he had enough sense not to put boots on the ground in Syria. But a lot of that is because the Iraq war was went so poorly already that there was enough public pressure against it. I don't think it was really him. I think it was us. But he did invade Libya. He made al-Qaeda great again, gave him a country, um, kicked off this refugee crisis, kicked off the housing bubble, the bailouts, uh, all of it. And he's one of the worst presidents we've ever had. And they act like he's 
cross between like Gandhi, Jesus or something. And people don't talk about how Gaddafi died and the fact that he was loved by his country and all the good things he did for his country. And now that's just a failed state of powder keg, just a breeding ground for whatever the Wahhabis in Saudi Arabia want to do. They made slavery great again. There was open air slave trade in 2011 in Libya. It's in the videos. Where they're selling people for $400. They gave a country to Al-Qaeda and it spilled over into Mali too. And that, I mean, no one, it's just Mali who cares, you know, like, well, you're just giving Al-Qaeda states basically. And a lot of the surplus weapons from Gaddafi's stockpile ended up in Syria allegedly for the FSA, but we all know it was ISIS, and uh, and destabilized that country. Still fighting going on in Idlib there. And Hillary's laughing about it. We came, we saw, so he died. He ah, died. So right. was the interviewer. Yep. They're disgusting psychopaths. Both Clintons, by the way, are involved with Jeff Epstein. <laughs> and it's with, with the uh, Lolita Express and so on. That's how these people behave. Because the Epstein affair isn't just him. It's all the people who covered it up. It's all the people that financed it, both his uh, illegal financial shenanigans as well as the obvious blackmail ring he was conducting. How are they letting this happen, Ryan? I guess it's like the Weinstein situation. How are they letting all this happen if we know, at least we have an idea who's behind all of this, especially with Epstein? I mean, Weinstein and Epstein are related because probably the most prominent figure fingered in this Epstein saga is Ehud Barat, the former prime minister of Israel. Uh-huh. There's pictures of him uh, outside of uh, the New York rape compound, and he's also logged to have gone to Rape Island in the Caribbean. St. Thomas. And as prime minister, his president was convicted of rape. And several of his Israeli diplomats in Brazil and Colombia got caught in giant child prostitution rings and child pornography. And he he brought them back to Israel and kept them out of jail. He covered for pedophiles and serial rapists. So, and then he's raping little girls, most likely, in New York and the Caribbean. Uh, That's Ehud Barat. And Ehud Barat is the one that introduced Black Cube, which is a former Mossad agent's to Harvey Weinstein to intimidate his victims. So they could remain silent, you mean? Yeah, to scare them off. And uh, Ahud Barat was financed through the Wexner Foundation. And, of course, Leslie Wexner, the owner of Victoria's Secret, whose models were often victims of molestation or rape by Epstein, was the principal financer of Jeffrey Epstein, gave him a $77 million home for $0 in New York, financed all his projects and he's the Wexner foundation put Epstein on the board. He's chairman of the board and they're giving millions of dollars to Ahud Barat. And then there was also this company, the software upstart that they use just as this money laundering. Um, it's called carbine. It's old name was called like reporty or something like that. And Epstein, uh, fronted money to Ahud Barat through that too. So they're financing the prime minister of Israel, who is openly covering up for international rape rings and child pedophilia, whose president was convicted of rape because he raped Israelis. They count. Uh, And then he's seen himself outside of Epstein's uh, 
rape mansions in New York, and he's hiring um, thugs on behalf of Harvey Weinstein, who's using his uh, Hollywood leverage to rape women in that industry. What do you think happened to Anthony Bourdain? Don't know. I like to be able to prove things before I speculate. You know, Asia Argento was supposedly raped by Weinstein, and even though he was part of the tribe, he was one of those people that apparently had a conscience, and he wanted to start talking. And by the way, I don't know if you heard, but last week, allegedly, Epstein almost died or was beat up in jail, and I've been getting some information, have you? No, he choked himself. It's on film. He was trying to get a transfer. Uh, he's trying to pull a Wilson Fisk. Oh, mm. it's dangerous here. Put me... This guy is a, um, a God complex. Uh, I would say I've been saying that, and I think I, I've been vindicated after the recent news of him admitting uh, <laughs> he wanted to spread his seed DNA. And DNA yes. And his little uh, eugenics ranch in New Mexico. And look, if a prisoner is going to beat up a child rapist, they're going to hit you. They're going to do a lot. They're not just going to sort of choke you and leave. That was self-inflicted. Uh, he's just trying. He thinks his lawyers are all telling him, oh, you're going to get in-house arrest in your mansion like last time. Well, this ain't last time. But don't you think this would be easier for the Clintons to add another Arkansas to the list? Yeah, that was the meme, like Hillary tweeting, when uh, Epstein commits suicide at 2.30 tomorrow. On the <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they'd love to get at him. He's in a, a Supermax prison along with El Chapo and whatnot. So he probably won't survive. Although I think there's so much money and power involved in this that they're not going to subpoena all those people. I would love for them to subpoena Jeseline Maxwell and, and go through all of it. But... I just don't have faith in the system. It's shocking. I think the only reason this is happening to Epstein is because it involves Ehud Barat, who's a political rival of Netanyahu, and they're running against each other in their election on September. That's all. It's just the roaches eating each other. Why are they prosecuting him now? Well, because that's what Netanyahu needs. To me, it's a sacrificial lamb. The only time any of these crooks go down is when they're feuding with the rival crook. It's kind of like drug cartels. Like, they'll kill each other uh, fighting over who gets to sell drugs where. Cops almost never do anything. And this is like infighting between Zionists. You got Ehud Barat, who's a Zionist child rapist, and Netanyahu, who's a genocidal maniac. And uh, But Netanyahu's the current prime minister, who's also facing corruption charges, as is his wife. And But he fa figured out, hey... I'll just release pictures of Ahuda. He was tweeting pictures of Ahuda Barat uh, outside of Epstein's mansion in the middle of this, you know. But they that side does the same thing because the Kushners were doing honey traps, not of children, but using prostitutes uh, to ensnare white collar workers and blackmail them all throughout New Jersey and New York. He even did it to his own brother-in-law in a feud with his sister. It's unbelievable. This is the behavior of these people. They're, they're real psychopaths. And they think, oh, I'll just use somebody. I'll, I'll get blackmail on this person or not. And that's how they control each other. And anyone that they can't get with the blackmail and honey traps, they'll just use the power of, well, let's just call him a racist. <laughs> that's, 
that seems to work. By the way, I wanted to keep the first segment as light as possible because we usually go deeper in segment two. And when segment two comes along... Oh, we can keep going deeper, don't worry. <laughs> we're going to go deeper. But let me read this. This is unrelated, but I want to get your reaction of what I'm about to read. And you give it to me on the other side. This is about Germany. And this is from one of our former guests here, Dr. Richard Sauter. And he told me, two days prior to the enactment of the German Constitution on 23 May 1949, a secret treaty, I don't speak German, but I'll read, Geheimert Stratverstrag was signed, which gave complete Allied control over electronic and print media, film, culture, and education until the year 2099. Keep a few generations brainwashed for 150 years and no one will ever remember what really happened a very clever plan i'll get your reaction on the other side how can people learn more about your work ryan watch your movies buy your books support you i think everything the safest place that won't get ovened is ancreport.com there's a tab there for films there's uh books i i'm still on amazon which is amazing um, <laughs> and there's the films and books are there, t-shirts and so on. And, uh, I used to have, I have a backup YouTube channel and a backup bit shoot, but the links for everything is on ANC report. We're living in interesting times. Folks don't go anywhere. I'm here with Ryan Dawson directly from Japan. This is Mel Fabregas and you are listening to Veritas. See you in the member section. Thank you for listening to the first part of this very important Veritas interview. To listen to the rest and all of our material, proceed to the members section or subscribe at VeritasRadio.com. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for MMS, hemp oil, pure organic sulfur, and other great products. Thank you.